After this I looked, and I saw in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs, they came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great cities split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. 
Well, if you're, um, if you're visiting here for the first time, you might wonder what on earth made them pick a passage like that. But we've been moving through Revelation, and today is the last in, the, in our series. We've gone from chapter 6 through to chapter 16, so well done. You're still here. And uh, anyway, so we're up to this one today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, you tell us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth, and that includes this chapter in Revelation. And so we know that by this we will live if we listen and take it to heart. So please help us to do it. Uh, We want to hear what your spirit is saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm told there are two sorts of people in the world. There's those, of course, who love disaster movies and those who can't stand them. I wonder, which one are you? Um, San Andreas, 2012, Dante's Peak, Armageddon, Don't Look Up. These movies are epic, aren't they? They are interruptions, major, final, determinative interruptions into our life and then sort of, you know, your your course or the course of humanity sort of is set from them. I find them unnerving. I don't like them. You can ask Narelle why she likes them later on. (coughs) I don't know. All right. It's one thing, though, to enjoy a movie we know is made-up fiction and not real. It's another one to listen to a real message about the end of the world. Some of us are old enough to remember Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth. Essentially, it was a warning to a world that was deaf at that time to the catastrophe that could come upon the world with climate change. That, that was 17 years ago that came out. Hands up who's watched it. I've never watched it, not because I'm a climate change denier, but the honest reason, if I'm honest, it's not a good reason, is because the truth is too inconvenient, right? It's too confronting, it's too hard. Now, I reckon we have the same issue when we come to Revelation chapter 16 because we're asked to take seriously the destruction of the world through God's final judgment. My goodness. (laughs) All right, as we've been going through Revelation, what we've been doing is looking at different takes, different angles on that time between Jesus' first coming and his second final coming. The moment when God sounds the final horn, when God presses end, on this present age, when the curtain of history falls and then the final eternal realities of heaven and hell are ushered in. Each of the different takes that we've seen has come in a series of seven, the seven letters to the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, that now the seven bowls of God's wrath. And as we've been going along, each series or, uh, you know, of um, sevens, skews more and more towards the end final judgment. And today we get to the destruction of the earth as part of God's judgment. Our natural tendency will be not to listen. I want you in your mind to rewind the clock, okay, back to, in my life, my second year at Bible college. It was mission week. I was in a team that went one day to a local teacher's college. Back then, everyone had a a combined lunchtime, and at this particular college, people tended to eat in the cafeteria. 
And at lunchtime in the cafeteria where everyone ate, some of our team members were on a panel up on the sort of raised platform, and there was an MC moving amongst the, the students with a roving mic. But just to get things started, the MC asked someone up on the panel to explain, can you please tell us, why should we take Jesus seriously? And straight away, without a beat, that person answered, to save you from going to hell. And at that point, the eyes of every disengaged person shot up, locked eyes with that panel member, and was outraged. The Christian lecturer of the college who was on the panel seized the microphone, denied entirely that he believed that's why people needed Jesus. He was backpedaling furiously. The MC was just totally flawed, stunned, didn't know what to do, trying to recover the situation. And all the students were just outraged at that point. Now, question, what do you think? Was the student right or even kind to answer in that way? to warn people about hell, even if it was an inconvenient truth or an objectionable truth. In Revelation 16, it opens our eyes to this objectionable truth. It describes the vision that the Apostle John sees given to him by Jesus. Seven angels pouring out seven bowls of God's wrath on the world. Now this is the final display of God's wrath and just to recap from last week, uh, I wasn't here, I was in Victor Harbour, but you were. This judgment is final, not evil, marvellous, and necessary. It's final. Early descriptions of, the, of judgment in Revelation had been partial. So when we covered the seven trumpets, one-third of the sea, one-third of the rivers, one-third of the sun and stars were affected. Here it's the whole of them, right? All of the sea, all of the rivers, all of the sun. This is the final judgment. And in fact, that's how they were introduced. These bowls were introduced to you last week in chapter 15, verse one. Seven angels with the seven last, last plagues, last, because with them, the wrath of God is completed. So God's final judgments. Now, how do we view them? Well, not as evil, because notice where they come from. They don't come from the dragon. They don't come from the beasts, terrifying as they are. They come from the angels who themselves are given the bowls of, of wrath from the four living creatures who are around the very throne of God. In fact, they were sung about last week, if you're here, you heard it, as God's great and marvelous deeds because God is finally acting to come and bring justice and in the light of his justice, we're told the nations will come and worship. There's a good outcome. And as well as marvelous, they're also necessary you go to the verse right before our passage, the last verse of chapter 15, we're told no one could enter God's temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Meaning, the pouring out of these bowls of wrath has to happen before God can dwell in peace with his people. They're necessary. He has to get rid of those who are set against him and those who make war on him and his people. Before he can make all things new, he needs to deconstruct that which is cursed, that which is evil. And this is how he does it. And so these are final, they're marvelous, they're necessary. And so we come to them. Chapter 16, verse one, John says, and then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. 
The first angel pours out his bowl on the land and then ugly, festering sores, boils, break out on the people who had the mark of the beast, physical sickness. The second angel pours out his bowl on the sea and the sea turns to blood and every living thing within it dies. And when you think about it, that means every food source that's provided from the sea for the people on the land, that dies as well. The third angel pours out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water. This is a judgment on fresh water now, not just salt. And it too turned to blood, and you and I know that without fresh water, we cannot live. And if we know the story of the Exodus, we'll see the parallels with the plagues that fell on Egypt, festering sores like boils, right? The plague of blood in the time of the Exodus. Oh, sorry, the plague of blood here. Um, parallels to the Nile River turning to blood, killing the fish. The plague of darkness here. Uh, the fifth bowl brings the, uh, the kingdom of the beast into darkness. There's the plague of frogs in the time of the Exodus. It's like the sixth bowl, which has impure spirits that look like frogs. Well, the seventh bowl bringing a plague of hail plague of hail in Exodus. But this time, the, the hailstones are 40 kilograms in weight, each one. Now, why this comparison? The plagues on Egypt in Exodus were God's judgment on that nation for their arrogance and their cruelty in opposing the Lord and oppressing his people. That's why the plagues came. And at the same time, as well as being a judgment on Egypt and its gods, they were the means of securing redemption for God's people. It's exactly the same here. The Lord's final judgment will bring down all the proud and arrogant people who have set themselves up in opposition to him and to his people. It will be God's final rescue of his people. And that's why last week, you heard about the song of Moses and of the Lamb being sung in heaven. It's why in the middle of these plagues in verse four, we have a similar song. You are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were. Except this song has something else, something new, something different. Have a look at verse six. The reason why God is so angry as to have these bowls of wrath poured out on the world is there. The Lord's anger is never disproportionate. We remember he doesn't fly off the handle. His character is to be slow to anger. So why this final devastating outpouring of wrath that we're told in verse six? You are just in these judgments, why? Because they have shared the blood of your holy people and prophets. God is angry at how his people have been treated and how they are treated today. He's angry that in other countries, Christians are still oppressed and still targeted to be killed. He's angry about that. He's angry that in the West, increasingly in corporate business and government institutions, every other faith seems to be given credence except the Christian one. He's angry for how the world has treated his son, rejecting him, crucifying him, and how we continue to treat his son since, gladly and gleefully mocking him and opposing him wherever possible. God is angry about that. He will not allow the world to continue to do that to his son or his people. There will come a day when the Lord says, enough. 
and call the world to account. And when he acts in judgment, his final judgment will be totally fair, verse six, just as they have shed the blood of your holy people and prophets, you have given them blood to drink, like for like, as they deserve. Now, to this you and I might say, come on, surely people aren't that bad. I mean, do they really deserve all of that? You know, we, we know people who, yes, yes, they're not Christian, but, and yes, they, they, they are anti, they've been resistant, but they're nice enough, mostly. How can hell really be fitting for them? Well, I want you to see the shock revelation in this passage and it is a shock, that despite these plagues, not just once but twice in verse nine and then again in verse 11, we hear that instead of people turning to God under pressure, what they do is under pressure, the true natures of, them, of themselves comes out. It's revealing. Look at verse eight. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat. This is disastrous, right? But instead of turning, instead of thinking, these plagues are getting worse, I should turn back to God. Okay, you know, I wave the white flag, I surrender. No, instead of that, they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. It's almost unbelievable. I mean, what does God have to do? The reaction is even more extreme with the next plague from verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness and then we're told people gnawed their tongues in agony. This is a hellish image, isn't it, right? But so is the hellish attitude of their heart. They gnawed their tongue in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores but they refused to repent of what they'd done. Um, Prior to that great moment, we see this in a milder form today. And this is why our world now currently suffers under God's judgment. Because it is under God's judgment. We know this from Genesis 3. Because of sin, creation itself became cursed. Cursed is the ground because of you. Our world is under God's judgment. We know it from Jesus. He said, nations will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. They are the beginnings of the birth pains. Our world suffers under God's judgment now from Romans 1, from Paul. We, uh, we hear him say, the wrath of God is currently re being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Or Romans chapter eight, the whole creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. That's why there are natural disasters. Of course, they're not natural, they're divine. C.S. Lewis said such sufferings were God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world and it should rouse people to repentance, except it doesn't. Because under pressure, what we're like in our heart of hearts comes out. Just reflect for a moment, in Australia, have we seen more people becoming Christians because of COVID, which is our greatest natural disaster in terms of deaths? 
Have we seen people turn en masse to the Lord? No, we haven't. Did the floods on the East Coast bring revival to that part of Australia, an earnest searching after God to avoid his coming judgment? No, they, they didn't. Instead, as a nation, Australia is known as a people who routinely curse the name of God and refuse to repent and glorify him. And the shock revelation from chapter 16 is not a a revelation about God, but a revelation about ourselves. In our natural selves, even though we are, yes, we are made in God's image, and even though each of us can still bear his likeness to some degree or another, on the inside, we are fallen, our depravity means that we will nevertheless be people who will choose to oppose God and when pushed we will curse him and when pushed further we would, get this, we would prefer to be in agony than to repent and glorify God. That is ugly, isn't it? And it's confronting and when you think about it, it makes hell a very fitting place for those who will be there. We think, (laughs) why can't God just take everyone to heaven? I mean, Jesus died for the sins of the world. We are assuming something about people when we have that thought. We are assuming that everyone would want to be there. But when we've read what we'll be doing there, which we've seen in Revelation, we'll be dis- we'll d- we discover that those in heaven will spend an eternity erupting in praise to God. And they will do it voluntarily. This will come from within. Because we'll be overcome by the magnificence of Jesus and the Lamb and the Lord on his throne. And maybe you're thinking, well, you know, I love God, but even that sounds too much for me. Uh, you know, who wants our hilltop praise night to go on forever, right? <laughs> Could I sustain that? The difficulty is with us now is that we only praise partly now because we only see him dimly now. Later on, we will see him fully as who he is. And so our doubt about whether we could sustain the enthusiasm for eternity, that's a very different question from whether we would really want to be there at all. Because those in hell do not. They have chosen the bed they would rather lie on. They would rather gnaw their tongues in agony than sing the songs of heaven. What we are like in the inside comes out and our final destination will be a fitting one. Either we'll have been transformed and overwhelmed by the grace and love of God and our appreciation for God's grace will only increase to an eruption of heartfelt praise, that's the saints in heaven, or our natural hatred of God will grow so much as to make hell a place we'd prefer to be in, as horrible as it will be. It comes out in the sixth plague, where with the three impure spirits that looked like ugly, unclean frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon that's Satan, out of the mouth of the beast that's worldly power, out of the false prophet, John says, these are demonic spirits that perform signs And they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Now, what is he talking about? This is the showdown of showdowns, Armageddon. It is what Psalm 2 foretold, which we read earlier. Nations conspiring, peoples plotting together, the kings of the earth 
rising up together, together against the Lord and against his anointed one. An earlier showdown happened when King Herod and Pontius Pilate conspired together to have Jesus crucified. In a way, that preliminary final has, has kept repeating throughout history, but it's all leading to this, the grand final ultimate showdown between Jesus and we hear his voice of warning. It interrupts the commentary um, in verse 15. He says, look, I come like a thief. And then he has a word to his team. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Now, it's not that God's against bodies, all right? <laughs> I mean, he made us butt naked, didn't he? Um, Jesus is telling his team to keep wearing his team colors. The robes of his righteousness, which he has given us, having also washed our robes in his blood, the blood of a lamb. That's what his team will be wearing. If, remember back in chapter seven, we saw the moment after the full-time horn, these in white robes, who are they? Where, where did they come from? These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and have made them white. Jesus is exhorting us to keep robed with his righteousness, which becomes ours. He's washed us clean, he clothes us with his. He's exhorting us to keep living it, keep believing it to the end, keep staying with faith in him, keep enduring, persevere, because the only way we will stand clean on the end is in him. But he warns us, if we were to somehow take off his righteous robes, if we were to let go of the gospel, if we were to renounce our faith, if we were to drift away, in the end, we stand naked, exposed on the day he comes. You say, look Lord, you wanna see my, my righteous robes? Filthy rags, nothing to offer. So keep going with the gospel, that's what we need to do because when the kings of the earth gather together for the final battle, we're told how it ends in verses 17 to 21. And we haven't got time to read it, but the vision layers picture on picture from the final horn sounding with the words, it is done. There's an earthquake. The city of Babylon, worldly power, split into three. Nations collapse. Islands and mountains flee. The islands and mountains are the places where people would normally go and flee to to escape you know, a terrible calamity. Well, guess what? Those places of refuge that you normally flee to, go, they've gone. They've fled themselves and 40 kilogram hailstones that are falling on people in a plague far greater than what fell on Egypt. It's a deconstruction, it's a decreation. Now how do we make sense of it all, this destruction of the earth? I want to ask the question first, is God anti-creation? All the waters of the earth, all the sea and its creatures, all of the freshwater streams and springs, the sun, the earth, it's all destroyed. Is God anti-creation? No, not ultimately, because heaven is not some wafty place in the sky. Revelation 21 describes a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. The old has gone, the new has come. Heaven is not some place up there. Heaven is described as a city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth. 
That is where the Lord will dwell with his people. There's a new earth. The earth is destroyed because at present it is cursed, it is groaning, it is fallen because of our sin. Sin affected the creation. This world, therefore, needs redemption as much as we do. That's why we're told in Colossians when, that Christ is the head of the new creation. And we're told that through his death, God reconciled to himself all things, not just people, but all things, including this world. Is God anti-creation? No, but just as we've got to get rid of this body to be fit for the new, and we need a resurrected body, this creation has to be replaced. C.S. Lewis said, God must love matter. He made such a lot of it. Second, is hell unfair? It's horrible, it's horrific, but is it unfair? Well, I want to say that this chapter adds to our understanding. The people who'll be there will go because they do not want to be in heaven. When push comes to shove, because in our natural heart of hearts we are anti-God and anti-Jesus the Lamb, when push comes to shove, people would rather chew their tongues in torment than sing with the saints. Now, at this point, if we were callous, we might now wipe our hands and say, well, oh well, people will get what they deserve. And so hell becomes something that either we joke about or an inconvenient truth we don't talk about because it's best avoided, so we shut our mouths. But how could we do that if by God's grace God has opened our eyes to him and to his kindness in saving us through his son? How could we be callous and indifferent? And so believers in Jesus sit with this discomfort. We know hell is real because the Bible teaches it. And that's why we need a savior, isn't it? Not to save us just from our addictions, to save us from the coming wrath. We need a savior. We accept this, but we feel the discomfort because what we are saved from is so difficult to talk about. But we must. Go back to that panel in the teacher's college cafeteria and to the question, why take Jesus seriously and the answer, so you don't have to go to hell. There's no question that the answer could have been better put. But for all the clumsiness and the apparent rudeness, was the panel member right in their answer? And what might have been their motivation? Well, for me, it was genuine concern for the people there because it was me. I was that panel member. And I remember the question was put so bluntly, I thought they need to hear. You know, I said, I said it straight. Someone needs to tell them. If no one tells them, they don't know. And they just go on existing as if life's a fluffy cloud and the end will be a fluffy cloud. 
Now, of course, I know there are other reasons to take Jesus seriously, his grace, his wisdom, his compassion, his lordship. But I remember John the Baptist's words when he prepared people for Jesus. He, he urged people to flee from the coming wrath. That was his, the drumbeat of his message. He wasn't preaching that for fear-mongering sake, but because it was real. And what is so wrong with warning people about a judgment to come if it's real? Surely the unloving thing would be to say nothing. You know, I'm really grateful for people who warned me. My younger brother in, you know, in our family, he took years before he became a Christian, but in the end, if you asked him, he'd say what pushed him finally to take the step of placing his trust in Jesus was his terror of going to hell. And so he grabbed the savior. Revelation 16 says that God is angry with people living their lives, making war in their hearts or you know, outwardly on his son and on his children. And there will come a day when God says enough. And on that day, as terrible as the judgment will be, it will also be totally fair and totally fitting. So what do we do with this? We have this knowledge. What will we do with it? When all around us are people who are lovely at one level, but if we scratch, we'll know that in their hearts they are making war against God and they're his enemies. You know, it's easy to think of our lives in our church like this. <laughs> A cruise ship. And on Sundays we come and we sit on the deck and we are here entirely for our enjoyment and our good time and our entertainment. But I want you to think of a different image. Imagine now that that ship is cruising through an ocean with, with thousands of people in the water who are perishing and in need of rescue. Well, of, what would we do? <laughs> of course we'd turn our cruise ship into a rescue ship, wouldn't we? And if we were on the deck, it'd be perverse to just keep sitting on our deck chairs, chatting to our friends and sipping our martinis. We'd get involved, wouldn't we? We'd, We'd be leaning over the side, plucking people from the sea and you know, putting blankets around them, trying to care for their needs. Guess what? Our church is not a cruise ship. It is a rescue boat. Or if it was a cruise ship, it's been turned into a rescue boat. I, I don't want to be, I don't want to guilt us all. There are lovely things about being part of a church. But fundamentally, we're a rescue boat. I am overjoyed that next Saturday, God willing, we will be baptizing Ben and Brandon and Doug. Saved from the coming wrath, three men. Rejoicing in Christ, yes, but also they've grabbed the savior. Saved from the coming wrath. To be able to see that, to be able to stand with them as, the church, as their church family, I can think of nothing better. Brothers and sisters, that is what we are on about. And we need to beg that by God's grace, he would so work in us and through us that next year that number would be even bigger. How do you respond to a heavy passage like that today? I think that's how you respond.
we're a rescue boat. Let's be about our task. Father in heaven, um, <laughs> what an astounding glimpse of reality you've given us through the book of Revelation, this heavenly perspective. Uh, thank you for it because <laughs> we are distracted um, our hearts grow cold. We, we do not see reality the way you see it. And thank you, Father, that this book has shaken us and woken us up. Our loving Father, help us to see with your eyes. Help us to see people with your eyes. Help us to see ourselves with your eyes. Help us to see time with your eyes. Help us to see the future with your eyes so that we can live now in light of the end in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen.